Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Please stand. Our chapter is going to be chapter 4. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter to give us some context, but our focus is going to be on the woman Deborah this morning. So chapter 4 of Judges, this is the word of the Lord. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. We skipped that guy. That's for our next series on Judges. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at this time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and mount, march rather on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, if you, are, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together with Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up with him, and Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and he had pitched his tents as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And, she, and he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. 
Then she covered him up, and he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be that if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here? You shall say, No. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you were seeking. And he entered with her. And behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And the hands of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have just read this story of great faith and trial, and I pray that we would be a people that exercise great faith when we are under trial. I pray that your word would speak to us and that it wouldn't be a judge who's living for a period of years that keeps us committed to your ways like Israel was with Eglon. Father, or Ehud, Father, I pray that you would would call us to yourself, bind our hearts to yours. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds together would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. We live in a day that is much like the time of the judges. We've said this a few times, being five, week in, five weeks into the series. But as I said at the very, very beginning, what better statement can define American culture, our culture, the, what we are a part of, than doing what we want? And there is no single area that more reflects our doing what's right in our own eyes today than sexuality. There is no greater single area that emphasizes this point, that we do what we want. We don't listen to uh, authority. We don't listen to our, even our biology. We do what we want. We live in a day where depravity and bondage and shame are declared to be enlightenment and liberation and pride. That's the day in which we live. And God says the wisdom of the world is foolishness before him. For it is written, He, God, is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Rebellion against God always ends up attacking and perverting who we are most centrally. And who we are most centrally are men and women that are created in the image of God. This isn't something that's limited to just us in this room. It's not something that's limited to Christians. All men and women, all boys and girls are created in the image of God, male and female, he created them. And that's a miraculous, wonderful mystery. And yet, what we see is that when people rebel and do what is right in their own eyes, they turn away from the things that they were most centrally created to be and to do. Our rebellion runs so deep that we want to protest how we've been made and what we've been made for. We stick it to the man. 
and we refuse to let him define who we are or what we are to do. The gender revolution that started before feminism but then has led to waves of feminism in in our culture and then in more recent years has given rise to things like transgenderism is exactly where rebellion against God always leads. That's who we are most centrally. We are men and women, sexual beings created in the image of God. That is the core of who we are. So rebellion may not get there overnight, but it's always marching towards that end. I say this this morning not because it's the beginning of June. It's actually purely coincidental. But I say this, or or providential, but I, I say this this morning because we're looking at a passage whose central figure is a great woman that is claimed and often used by feminism to support their distortions, their warped views on what the Bible teaches regarding the roles of men and women, both in society and in the church. Deborah who we're reading about, she's going to be our focus. She is the, a main focus of chapter 4, and she is the, the author of chapter 5, which is a song really reflecting on what has happened on what has happened in chapter 4, is written by Deborah. Deborah is a feminist icon. They reference her as a support piece in their claims regarding the Bible's support for women in the role of pastor or elder. She was a, a prophetess or in the role of carte blanche authority wherever they want in the civil or social or political spheres or the role in warfare. Deborah might seem like an easy support for anyone who's willing to ignore, though, all the very clear and consistent teaching of Scripture with regard to the roles of men and women. And she might seem like an easy support piece for those who don't actually take uh, Judges 4 and 5 and really read them and study them to see what it teaches. And feminists' thinking about Deborah is wrong. And while I want us to be aware that feminists often will, if you talk with Christians that are trying to te- push this worldview of feminism, they will often point to Deborah. It's, it's very, very common. I want us to be aware of how they, they hijack Deborah, but I want to move on from there. We're not going to really talk about all that this morning because I don't think most of us hold to that feminist position. But, but what we can fall prey to is the notion that Deborah is an exception rather than an example to be followed. Do you understand what I'm saying? We may not buy into all of that, but we sort of Give, give them a nod by saying that she's an exception rather than an example. This error is a reaction against feminist distortion. Rather than simply living and let the, letting the passages of Scripture stand and speak on their own two feet. So I want to warn us against being reactive. We cannot react against feminist claims to Deborah by disowning her or by trying to dull down her glory in attempt in an attempt to make what we're told about her more palatable or seem to fit into our nice little box that we want to put her in. Some responses to the feminist championing of Deborah, uh, some, re- some respond to Deborah by saying that she should have never judged in Israel in the first place, that it was a sin, but it was a sin like other times in, in Scripture, like, like the midwives lying about Noah. It was a sin that was justified because of the time she was in. Some point out that the author of Hebrews doesn't mention her, and he does mention Barak, and so, therefore, the New Testament doesn't support her, it doesn't endorse her, in fact, it's not saying what she did was was good. But we cannot be reactionists. 
If you don't know what I mean by this, I want to tell you about my neighbors. One, we love them both. We've had them both over for dinner. One is a classic, the classic liberal. They live in a bungalow. They don't drive a Subaru, but they should. They, uh, she's a ghostwriter for The Economist. The other is the classic American vigilante conservative. I'm talking Marine, baseball cap, you know, just a ham radio guy. You know what I'm talking about? That guy. Yes. Thank you for the 50-foot pole in my back. <laughs> so these are my neighbors, and I, we've grown to love them both. But they're reactionistic against each other. One puts up a flag. Guess what? The other puts up a flag, baby, and you better believe it's not the same one. One complains about global warming, and bless his heart, that man, I'm not going to say his name, lets his Chevy truck idle in the road across the street for a good 25 minutes, right? One is talking with us one day about environmentalism and how we need to save the planet and how we need to save these trees. And one of the things we've loved the most about the place we live is the fact that there's these beautiful, wonderful, humongous black walnut trees that grow and tear up the sidewalks and the road and block the drainage and sewer systems and drop gobs of black walnuts that we have to rake. But they're beautiful. Trees like that take a long time to grow. We love them. So I was actually talking with my neighbor the one that's, you know, tree hugger, about these trees. And the other neighbor was on the other side of the sidewalk. It wasn't a week. And this guy's got his steel chainsaw. He cut down a walnut tree that was right across the street from these neighbors on the other side, probably at a circumference of what, maybe three feet, four feet. It was huge. And he didn't even cut it to use the wood. He hauled it all away, just cut it into flat, circular sections. Couldn't believe it. One is moving. And it's not because of the other, but I tend to think it's sped along because of the other. Okay? They have children that they're moving to be with, but they've lived in Waterville 50 years. They love the area. And I think that the neighbor across the street has really given them a little push. This is reactionism. All right? This, th my neighbors... One does something, the other reacts. But listen here, we are all tempted to be reactionist. We all are. So listen, stay with me. When feminists point to Deborah and her leadership, and it's real leadership, when they point to that as their smoking gun, as their proof for their biblical position being okay, we are tempted to react and throw out her example or to at least make lots of qualifications, and that is to be reactionary. Remember that Jesus never fell prey to reactionary thinking. He was never threatened. He was not driven or motivated by the things that were, that were less than what was right and true. His disciples often wanted to react. Oh, this person's speaking in your name, Lord, and he's not with us. Jesus didn't react. He said, yeah, if they... If he's speaking in my name today, he can't do anything to hurt our cause tomorrow. The disciples often wanted to react. Jesus never did. Be driven by what is right and true rather than fueled by your anger or fear by what is wrong. Okay? 
You have to be driven by what is right and true and pure and lovely rather than fueled and angered, powered by your hate for the things that are wrong. This means that you should not try to iron out passages that don't seem to square with what you hold to be true. The Bible does not need you to massage it. Let it stand on its own two feet and let's learn together from it. Do not let your interpretation of Scripture be driven by reactions against distortions of Scripture. If this is your approach, if this is my approach, that we hear all the things that we disagree with and so we react against them, then you're going to develop a very stunted view of what the Bible actually teaches. And ironically, you're going to end up trimming and folding and tucking the Bible to fit your view. You're going to end up doing what you want with the Bible, which is the core message of Judges. Don't pin the Bible down or try and put it in your box. Learn from it. Be humble. Submit yourself to it. Just because feminism pushes for power and leadership and strength in women in a way that cuts against the truth of what the Scripture actually does say and mean, it doesn't mean that we should see in Deborah a a, a bad example or that she should be qualified as an exception for women. Her character should not be an exception in the church. What we learn about who Deborah was should not be an exception. We need Deborahs. You know, dare to be a Daniel? I'm switching it. Dare to be a Deborah. All right? Miriam, you got to know that song. Dare. Dare to be a Deborah. Today more than ever, we need women who are like Deborah. Women who have real strength and who can wield authority in the right way, in the right way, in a way that flows with Scripture rather than seeking to kick against it. If Deborah is a feminist icon, then she's not to be shunned by us, she is to be reclaimed by us. And we cannot have this reactionistic view of her where we seek to dilute her down. We need to go in and take her back. Deborah is a testament to the truth that we don't fight feminism and the lies and rebellion about the roles of men and women by taking an approach that's chief operating principle is to do whatever the opposite of whatever the feminists do. We can't live that way. That, that's not where the power is. Deborah is a mother in Israel. We need mothers in Israel. And for many, many years, Jordan was speaking about the generations that God has allowed us in his kindness to stand as a pillar of light in Toledo. And for the last 20 years, one of the chief strengths and glories of our church has been its women. And it hasn't been that the women are quiet and weak and always on the periphery and, and, and saying that that is godliness. It's that they are leading and doing and serving, but not kicking against Scripture in flowing with the Scripture. It's been such, I mean, you think about a pillar of this building. What is one of the pillars that's holding this up? And of course, the foundation is, is the Word of God, but we have had that, and that is a blessing, and I'm so thankful for the women of this church. But I also look out, and I see many, many younger women. Some of you are in high school. Some of you are in college. Some of you are, are just getting your first job. Some of you are new mothers. We need Deborahs to rise up. We, we can't, the, what, what we've had for the last 20 years in God's kindness won't last forever, and so 
generations are rising up, and, and this is a call to you who are rising up. I also want to say, because this is aimed mainly at ladies, I do want to speak to the men a little bit. Men, husbands, fathers, these are the things that you should be supporting and cultivating in your wife. These are the things that, so pay attention, listen. As we consider Deborah, I want to look at her through the lens of two words in, in, in Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31 is a well-known passage here and should be amongst all Christians because in Proverbs uh, 31, the godly woman is outlined, her character, her strength, her glory, her beauty. And there's, as I was reading about Deborah, there's a phrase in 31 of Proverbs that came to my mind, and that phrase is, she's clothed with what? Strength and dignity. Strength and dignity. Feminism has a lot of strength, but it has no dignity. They sell it away. Strength and dignity. And this these words became the lens that I saw chapter 4 through. And so I want to, um, this morning, look at our passage and think about the character of Deborah through the lens of her strength and through the lens of her dignity as a woman. And we're going to do that this morning. Deborah was a woman of incredible strength. And I want to point out a few examples from the text and then exhort you as mothers in this church to imitate Deborah. Notice what we're told. First, verse 4, it says this, Deborah was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and she was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit out under the palm tree, and I was like, what is up with people sitting under palm trees? You know, somebody got a set of trees a couple chapters ago. I, mean, I realized that Gideon's got a tree. It's like, what is up with the trees, you know? But, you know, geography, which is one of the things that none of us learn, being Americans, is like out in the desert, what are trees signals of? Well, there's tree, they signal life, water. If a tree can grow, maybe so a person can survive. So this is most likely her residence. She's sitting out under a palm tree, and she's got the sons of Israel coming up to her for judgment. So she's a prophetess, a wife, and she's judging. This is a hard-working woman right here. In a single verse, verse 4, we're told that Deborah worked in various capacities. We've already met. She's not only a wife, and it doesn't say, it doesn't leave that off. That's an incredibly important, important fact, the wife of Lapida. She's also a prophetess. She's also a judge. This is no idle woman. She is serving in her home. It's sort of match, actually. She's serving in her home. She's serving in her church, and she's serving in her community. She's serving Lapidoth. She's serving the community by being a judge and, and helping Israelites, and she's, she's prophesying. She is fully engaged, and she's doing it well. Now, how, why can I say she's doing it well? Well, it's obvious. It's obvious, but God is pleased to use her in a special way. This speaks to the character that she has. It speaks to the type of woman that she was. We're also told that the Israelites would always come up to her. They'd make the trip up to her tree to talk with her. This speaks of the, her character. And let me say, you don't have character in one area of life that you don't have in another. All right? This is, this is the, uh, one, of the, one of the favorite lies of our culture, that you can be somebody at work or you can be somebody here and not be 
or almost like they, they value out each other. You've got, you know, you're, you're a 90 over here and you're a 30 over here, so the average out. But that's not the reality. You are who you are. And she's serving in these various capacities in her home and, and prophes- being a prophetess and a judge, and she's doing it well. The Israelites came up to her because they valued her. You don't combat feminism by being lazy or by having this view that a righteous life is a life where you just sit around and, you know, do what's maybe right in front of your toes. You combat feminism through hard work. This is strength. This is the strength of Deborah. Now, Deborah does give herself to physical hard work, and, and that's certainly true. But we also should not neglect to notice that um, she does not disparage the work that happens up here in her mind. She does not leave her mind undeveloped or unchallenged because she's a woman and her, her place is in the tent, right? Clearly, she was recognized as a wise counselor and a judge, and people come to her to settle all sorts of social and legal and relational cases. Now listen, we should take note that in this way, she was very different than all the other judges we have read about already and we'll read about. Now, I'm not saying that the other judges weren't godly and didn't have any of these abilities, but listen here, she led from wisdom and character rather than sheer might. If you remember, what is it that caused a lot of these other judges to be recognized? It was military victory, wasn't it? And as we go on, you think of Gideon, you think of Samson, you think of Othniel taking the city. It is those acts which do require faith, and things that are internal, but it's sheer acts of might that, that, that telegraph to the people. This is a worthy leader. Remember, a couple hundred years from now, maybe 150 years, you, you get Saul, the first king, and, and it's not necessarily his mind, it's the way he looks. People work this way. They, they, you know, they'll see something and say, ah, this, this person must have some substance. With Deborah, she's not out fighting battle. It is her wisdom, her godliness, her character that wins the people to her. Remember that the work of judging was incredibly hard work. This is initially, if you think back, where did judges begin? Well, it began with Moses. When he was leading out the people, you remember that his brother and, uh, father-in-law Jethro came to Moses, and Moses' days were filled with trying to make judgments amongst the people who were out in the wilderness and they were bickering like crazy. And Jethro said what? He said, you're going to wear yourself out. You've got you to do something about this. I think Moses was a pretty high-capacity leader, don't you think? But Jethro said, you're going to wear yourself out. So Moses selected judges. And over 50s, 10s, 50s, 100s, thousands. And they served along, alongside him. Many of you know that his t- I used to be a roofer. I used to do commercial roofing, and I'm grateful that I did that. It was extremely taxing, and it's given me gratitude to God for allowing me to not have to do that for the rest of my life, and it instilled in me hard work, which is good. A lot of good things have come about because of that job. And yet, for as taxing as getting up and meeting 
on the job site at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock. It's a commercial building, so you, you don't have the rules like you do in neighborhoods where you have to wait till 7 or 8 o'clock to start. So we'd start early. And you'd get home sometimes, sometimes I think our longest day ever was like, what, 4.30 to like 8 or 9 or something? It was insane. And I was exhausted, obviously. But I think we all know that for as hard as physical work can be, what mental work does to you can even be more exhausting. Some of, the, some of my most exhausting days are the days where I'm dealing with my own sins, the sins of my home. Sin. It's exhausting work dealing and trying to make judgments with people. It's exhausting. Mothers, you can certainly relate to this fact. I think in homes where there's children, the most taxing days are probably the days not where you've been outside in the garden or or running around and, or serving here or doing any of the things you might do on a given day or week, but when it's been a hard day with lots of bickering and you're in the position of making judgments in your home, it is exhausting. So you know that this is true. It drains you emotionally, mentally, drains your body of energy. It's, it's difficult work. Deborah, listen here, Deborah was strong. Deborah was no fuddy-duddy. She was a serious woman who had the capacity of dealing with serious situations and making hard calls. She was a strong woman. That was, a, that, was a that was part of her glory. Deborah did the hard work of using her mind for the well-being of those around her. And in a day where feminism will push intellectualism and education, it can be easy to react against this by saying that women shouldn't pursue that or that they shouldn't make that a goal that education is sort of more for men than it might be for women. This is ridiculous. No matter how much education you may or may not have, and it doesn't matter if you go to college or if you don't, but a strong woman seeks to develop her mind and use it for the good of those around her. And we see Deborah doing that. The church needs that sort of woman. Our culture needs that sort of woman. We don't combat feminism by allowing our minds to be idle. We combat feminism by seeking to grow in discernment and godly wisdom. So I call you to it. Deborah's example calls you to it. Deborah's strength is also seen in her willingness to go to the battle with Barak. She's brave. She is courageous. Remember that when she tells Barak she's not, that, that, that God wants him to go fight against King Jabin's army, Barak doesn't want to go because da, 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 those chariots show back up. 900 iron chariots. And iron chariots, I know they took 10,000 men, but 900 iron chariots cut through men like a hot knife through butter. And they didn't stand a chance, in earthly terms, of defeating Barak. Barak says to Deborah when she says, go and fight, he says, uh-uh, if you're willing to go with me, if, then I will go. But if you don't go with me, I'm out. You're on your own. I'm not going to do it. Her response, listen to it, I will surely go. I will surely go. Not if, like Barak had responded, I will surely go with you. Deborah had no business going to war. She didn't need to risk her life on the battlefield, but she did. And do you think she was afraid to do that? Well, of course she was afraid. Don't be stupid. This is real life. This isn't, this isn't VeggieTales story time here. She was going to battle up against an unsurmountable foe who had outnumbered, well, not outnumbered, but certainly outarmed them. How could she do this without there being any fear? God did not promise her that she would keep her life. 
I think we tend to read these kind of things in, like when Abraham goes to sacrifice his son Isaac. Well, Abraham, it wasn't a, I got told once, Abraham, it wasn't a problem for him at all. He knew his son was going to live. Ridiculous. The fact that she said God is going to deliver us from this army does not mean that if she agrees to go as a woman who is weaker than men onto a battlefield with iron chariots that she's going to keep her life. And yet she says, I will surely go with you. She does not give in to fear. She does not let fear control her. She trusts in God and has faith and says, I'll surely go. You cannot combat feminism with a lack of backbone or a lack of spine. You combat feminism with bravery, with courage, with faith. You combat feminism by, as Proverbs 31 says, once again, you, you pair 31 in this chapter 4 of Judges, and there's so many similarities. We're not really flushing out more than a, a few of them. You combat feminism by smiling at the future, not raging against the future, not worrying about the future, smiling at the future for however potentially dangerous it might be. This is strength. So I, I hope I've made the point that Deborah is strong and it's to the glory of God and it's to her glory as a woman. She lifts up womanhood in this chapter. But I also want to talk about dignity. She was a woman of beautiful dignity and it's an example of how strong woman um, she is an example of how to be a strong woman without allowing, and listen here, uh, without allowing that strength to drive her in bad directions. She sets an example of how to fight without being unseemly. Deborah is dignified, and this is, like I said earlier, exactly what feminism lacks. We're told that Deborah sent and summoned Barak. And she said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march on, march on Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men. Now notice here what she doesn't do. What does she not do? Think about her, her position. Think about what God had said to her. What does she not do? Well, what she doesn't do is she doesn't decide that she's going to go and rally the troops herself, does she? Of course, she had all the clout she would have needed. Remember, People from all over Israel are coming up to her for judgment. And also remember that in a few short verses, Barak's going to say, unless you go with me, I'm not going to go. So could have she done it? Absolutely. She had the clout. She had the pull. She had people's confidence. If Barak, who was the, the military leader, wasn't willing to go if she didn't go, do you think that she couldn't have done the task herself? And yet, she doesn't. She knows the role that God has given her to fill. And she does not allow herself to allocate more worth to other positions than the ones that God has called her to. And that is an important lesson, a uh, thing to remember, especially as you grow in strength, especially as you seek to grow strong. Do not allow yourself to allocate more worth to the positions that God hasn't called you to than the ones that he has put you in. So for shoe culture out there, don't ever value somebody else's shoes more than the ones God has given you and put on your own feet, right? You get this, what I'm saying? Okay. That's dignity. Calling Barak and saying, you go. A second factor revealing Deborah's dignity is that after defeating the armies of King Jabin, we're told that she sings a song of praise to God. Now, we haven't read it, and we may read it next week. But it's chapter 5. It's essentially 
the story of what we hear in chapter 4, but from a theological or doxological viewpoint. Doxological is a word that might get a whistle blown at me. All it means is we sing the doxology, right? Doxological just means like it's praise, it's thanksgiving. In chapter 4, we're given straight historical facts. In chapter 5, we have a poetic retelling of the story with more detail and a special emphasis of praise and thanksgiving to God for his deliverance. And after Israel's victory, many, many would have been tempted to grab the power and rule. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about Gideon, I think. And um, one of the things that's striking is that after Gideon delivers Israel from the Midianites, you know, when they take their pots and their trumpets and they run down in the middle of the night and God fights their battle for them, you're all, most of us are aware of that story. Do you remember what happens after that? Well, the Israelites have just had this mirac- humongous victory, right? Their celebration. What do they say to Gideon? They say, rule over us. You know, we need somebody like you. You've done pretty well for us. And he, I'm sure we'll read it, he, 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 he turns down their offer and says, no, the Lord should rule over you. It would be tempting for anyone who has just led a humongous military victory in battle and who has been known and respected beforehand to seek to grab more. This sort of ties in with what we just said, but I want to say Deborah refuses to do that. She doesn't do that. She does what God has called her to very well. And she's happy with that. You understand? She's happy with what God has called her to. There's contentment, but not contentment with piddly performance. Contentment in doing something well and not always having to have more. That's dignity. Third, we should take notice of Deborah's humility. Deborah is humble. When Barak refuses to go to war, which was a shameful and faithless condition for him to to say that, she says that, okay, I will go with you, but nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours. That's a condemnation on, on, on Barak. It's not going to be yours, for the Lord is going to sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Well, she's a prophetess. She's heard that from God. Did she know who that woman was going to be? We aren't told. We don't know. I'm not going to say she did or didn't know. Do you think she might have thought, maybe she got half that telegram, it's going to be a woman. Ooh, I wonder who it will be. <laughs> you know, there's my sin, right? That's the way I'd think. Ooh, telegraphing. I wonder who's going to... It wasn't her. It wasn't her. God didn't use her to sell Sisera into their hands. And yet, guess what? She's humble about it. She's happy. Her response is thanksgiving and worship, right? She doesn't need all the glory. She doesn't need to be the one who drove the peg through Sisera's temple and the one who kicked off this big miraculous defeat of Jabin, the king king who reigned in terror over them. She doesn't need to be that person. It's because she's humble. Dignified women are humble women. So Deborah's strength and dignity can be summarized in the title that she gives herself in the next chapter. We didn't read it, but I'm going to read just two, two verses from it to us right now. This is her song. This is a song that she and Barak sang to the Lord and in, in the nation of Israel, alongside the nation of Israel. And it says this, in the days of Sham- she's singing, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. Travelers went by roundabout ways. 
the peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. Now, in this stanza of Deborah's song, she's describing the condition of Israel at the time when she came into leadership, until I arose, which is signaling that she had to make a decision here. God called her to it, but it wasn't just her laying in a hammock, swinging in the breeze, and then suddenly, bam, underneath her tree, judging, right? This has taken some effort on her part. This stands as describing the conditions, and it's not a pretty one. Israel is in a bad state of affairs. There's suffering. There's fear. What does it mean that people don't travel on the roads, and when they do, they take roundabout ways? Sounds like me trying to get to the freezer for ice cream at night. It's because there's fear, right, of being caught, of being terrorized. It's not pretty. And I wouldn't be pretty. I'm not pretty, but I wouldn't be pretty if I ate all the ice cream I wanted, so I'm thankful for some sort of accountability. <laughs> but it's not, a, it's not a good time. They aren't free in any sense of the word, and that is where doing what's right in your own eyes leads. It's where it had gotten them. Deborah says that it was that way until she arose, but takes special notice of the way she describes her role. She does not say, until I arose, a prophetess. She doesn't say, until I arose and judged Israel and straightened out all those people. She doesn't say, until I arose as a military hero and mustered these sad sap troops. She doesn't say, until I arose and I called on Barak and I gave him a divine earful of it. She says, until I arose, a mother in Israel. This is how she saw herself, a mother in Israel. Not a warrior, not a political leader, not a judge. She saw herself as something far greater than any of those things, far more glorious, a mother of Israel, the glory, most glorious of all occupations. What is the glory of motherhood? Well, the glory of motherhood is that mothers expend their strength for the good of those that are around them. They expend their energy, their attention, their love. They spill it into those that God has placed around them. Think about it. Even it's built in in the, in the biology of how women are made. When God creates children in the womb, she is nurturing. She can't help but nurture and feed that child and its growth. The mother is expending herself, spending herself physically to care for and to grow a baby. And of course, what begins at conception is carried out throughout all of life. Mothers give themselves away for the good of those that are under their care. And that is what we see in the life of Deborah. We see her using all of her strength at peak capacity, not for selfish gain, that would be undignified, but for the good of those that have been placed within her home, within her country, under her tree. Deborah is a mother who is worthy of your attention and not just your attention, and certainly not your qualification, but your imitation. Older women, I'd ask that you continue to model what you've modeled so well and that you don't grow weary, and that you insert yourselves into the lives of those that are younger. That you, you, you do that. And that, that takes a step. You might have to arise a little bit to do that. For younger women, don't, don't aspire to be anything more or less than what Deborah is. Don't settle to be quiet, meek, saccharine, sweet, and think that that is righteousness and strength. Dare to be a Deborah. Men, I want to say you want a Deborah. Don't think that a woman who's never going to challenge you, never going to call you out, never have any spine with you is superior in godliness or faithfulness. She's not. You want a lady who's going to stand beside you 
but give you back pressure when you're weak. You want a lady who is going to hold you accountable. You want a wife that's not going to let, a get, let you get away with your own junk. And I'm so thankful. You know, when I, when I first dated Aaliyah, I remember her areas of strength aren't mine. And that was pretty intimidating. And I went through a brief time where I thought, I don't really want this. Because in my pride, I wanted to be the one that was strong in every single area. Right? Like, she's far brighter than me in, certain way, in many ways. And and I, th- I thought, I don't like the fact she's getting a higher GPA. I don't like the fact that this, this, this. And I remember the day I realized I had a thought and it went something like this. You are a fool. Why- you are going to yoke yourself, potentially, to this young woman. And you're going to be one flesh. And you're saying you'd rather have someone who's worse than you at everything to be your glory? Is that really what you're saying? I think that's probably a, a pretty common temptation, especially for young guys. Don't give into it. Don't give into it. You want a Deborah. You want a Deborah. Remember David with Abigail. Abigail made up for the foolishness of her husband, and after God put Nabal to death, what King David do? He's like, man, that would be a pretty good wife. And he actually ends up calling her and marrying her, becomes her wife. So I want to challenge you as ladies. Be a Deborah. Dare to be a Deborah. Men, seek women that remind you of Deborah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would fill us with your strength and that for as much strength as we may or may not have, that we would be dignified, not just strong, and that we bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.